Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Our scripture lesson this week is from the Gospel of according to St. Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, the parable of the lost son. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, his younger son packed his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time that his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home even the hired servants have enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. He said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We have had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love the story of Les Miserables, and I may or may not have a tattoo somewhere on my body reflecting my love for that story. It's that story where I first felt an emotional connection to the concept of grace. There was one who bore the mark of a sinner, a criminal, and an outcast, and because of grace, he was given a second chance, and he used that opportunity to show gratitude in the form of a self-giving love. Valjean, the prisoner, 
was in prison trying to provide for a child in need. He lived in anonymity so he could then provide for a different child in need. He risked his life, went into isolation to make sure that that child could grow up safely and knowing love. But why so much hiding, isolation, and anonymity if love was his motivation? It's because grace was not the only factor at work there. Retribution and vengeance were also in play, and it was the culture of retribution that really brought about the misery in Les Miserables. It was also perfectly embodied in the dedicated lawman, Inspector Javert. He tirelessly pursued those who had done wrong so they could receive their punishment, though not necessarily justice. I like the character of Javert in the musical, largely because I'm a baritone and that makes his parts easier to sing. But I can't love that he basically embodies a merciless shame. When faced with the evidence of a changed heart, this self-righteous enforcer saw no world in which transformation was an option. When shown the mercy he had failed to show others, he would rather die than live in a world where a criminal could exhibit moral superiority. He could not live in a world where the runaway could return home and be restored. It was unimaginable to him. Javert was focused. He was determined. He was incredibly good at his job. And he was also one of the miserable. A life without the possibility of grace or redemption is absolutely miserable. The series of stories that Jesus is telling has to do with lost things. A man who put 99 other sheep in jeopardy to restore the one who wandered, and then when he returned home with his found sheep, there was a great celebration. A woman who lost a coin and turned over her house to find it, and once finding it, she invited everyone over to celebrate that the lost thing was found. Jesus tells a story of a man with two lost sons. The scripture headings in our Bibles often refer to this story as the one lost son, that's not the whole picture, and it usually misses the point that Jesus intends to the audience that was spending time with him. The folks who were listening wanted to know why Jesus spent so much time trying to befriend sinners and people like tax collectors who were offensive to their sensibilities and propriety. They were able to see so clearly how this other group was lost. They missed entirely that Jesus spent time with them, so they themselves might find their way home too. That takes us to our first lesson this morning. It's the distance of the heart, not just the body, that makes somebody lost. It's the distance of the heart, not just the body, that makes someone lost. After my sister gave birth to my nephew over 19 years ago, several people wondered aloud if she would have any more kids so that this, and he was a little guy at the time, now he's over six feet tall, but they wondered if he would have any siblings. And my older sister said, in my hearing, my friend was an only child and she swears by it. She didn't mean to convey that her life would have been better if our parents had stopped after the first child, but she did tap into something that is fairly clear among parents. The only way to prevent sibling rivalry is to stop at one kid. Folks who study things like birth order and personality traits tend to find some similarities. Firstborns are often leaders because they've had to blaze the trails in their family. They're responsible, reliable, conscientious, and occasionally drawn to perfectionism, and sometimes they're bossy. Birth order doesn't guarantee that, but there are some relatively common traits. Put these together, and you've got many of the ingredients for a recipe, at least for the sake of this parable, of somebody who may feel the need to earn 
affection in their family through achievement. Well, this story goes on in Jesus' telling. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Why wasn't the older brother home? Well, someone had to labor to tend to the estate since his dad seemed to check out in order to watch for his wayward son from the porch. The fields and flocks were not going to take care of themselves. And sure, even though there were servants, maybe their standards or expectations weren't quite as high as those of the firstborn heir. The estate demands attention. Just a couple of chapters before this story, Jesus encountered a situation where dear friends of his, who happened to be siblings, were torn. One was laboring to tend to the company that they were hosting. Another sat studiously at Jesus' feet. The busy Martha wanted Jesus to tell her sister Mary to have her get up, help out, and get to work. The scripture tells us, but the Lord said to her, Dear Martha, you're worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. It's not that there isn't a time for work. But if we find ourselves so busy doing servant work instead of being the father's child, we will absolutely miss the celebration. We will miss the relationship. Older brothers treat people as a means to an end. They are utilitarian. They believe people exist to keep tasks moving forward and treat people accordingly. Not like siblings, but like slaves. It's partly because they believe that of themselves. Churches can be really bad about this. I've served growing congregations and I've served declining congregations. And without exception, the declining congregations say they are interested in drawing new members. But it's not because they want to share in the joy of salvation. They're tired. They've been serving in their spots for so long. And they are afraid the church is going to fold if other people don't pick up the mantle. They need someone to take over the work and preferably in the exact same ways that it's always been done. And people pick up on that, of course. It's not especially appealing as an invitation. And yet, when these faithful, duty-bound, but tired folks pick up from the derelict lack of volunteers, is that these newcomers, who they've never really formed a relationship with or mentored, don't seem to care as much about the church, as much about the estate, as these long-tenured workers do. It's a fairly common cycle that uncommon congregations find ways to break. For reasons of utility, churches with a lot of older brothers don't have homecomings. Younger brothers and prodigals may come to know the love of their father, but they also understand and sense the disdain of their siblings. Our second lesson is this. Older brothers keep away from the celebration and pretend they're being excluded. Older brothers keep away from the celebration and pretend they're being excluded. Your brother is back, the story goes on. And your father has killed the fatted calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. The younger son insulted the father by disowning his family through waste and immediate gratification. That's why he left home. Now the older son is insulting his father by disowning his family through anger and bitterness. That's why he won't come home. Jesus goes on. The older brother replied, All these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. 
Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. This son of yours, this man was disowning his brother. He was distancing himself physically and emotionally from the prodigal. The younger brother may be the extravagant father's son, maybe too much the extravagant father's son, but he will definitely not recognize that son of his father as a sibling anymore. Listen to what the elder brother is really saying. Sure, I was born into the privilege and generous wealth of yours, old man, but I worked for it. I deserve it. Older brothers believe they want justice, not mercy. They want what they think they deserve, which is everything they've worked for. They don't want to imagine that they're recipients of an unearned gift, that they've been shown a kindness that is undeserved. Older brothers are more concerned about what's in it for them than sacrificing for others out of compassion. And this is all really testing the older brother's already short patience. Think for a moment. Whose inheritance is being spent on this party? Whose fattened calf is it? that the younger brother is receiving now. But whose would it be if he never returned home? This runaway younger brother already got one-third of his father's wealth to which he was entitled. Now the older brother is concerned about maintaining his share, his slice of the pie, his status, his place of honor. This is humiliating to a person of loyalty. As a matter of fact, he didn't want his little brother to come back to life. He didn't want his brother to turn around at all. He would rather the prodigal stay dead and lost. There were a lot of liberties taken with the movie Titanic, but there's one painful point that they drove home very well in the film. There was a class of people who had a better chance at survival because the system was stacked in their favor and against those who weren't on their level. Let's take a look a little bit at how that played out. Jesus isn't just telling a story about a father and his earthly estate here. He's talking about ultimate things. Ultimately, he's talking about salvation. In this parable, our Savior has the older brother arguing about deserving in the context of Jesus emphasizing the urgency of those who are outside of the lifeboat, frozen, drowning, and dying apart from God. Older brothers are certain it's their wealth, resource, and lifeboat to deploy or withhold as they see fit. And in that way, the older brother is asking, as acting as though his father is already dead. And he refuses to reconcile because he thinks he's the one who's being slighted. But whose wealth is it, really? Whose estate? Whose lifeboat? It all belongs to the father. If you're with somebody at home, turn to that person and say, it's not your lifeboat. And then have that person turn back to you and say, it's not your lifeboat either. The father, as the rightful owner, will use whatever he wants, however he wants, to accomplish what he pleases. And to extend the parable to eternal concerns, our Heavenly Father desires that all people would be saved. Our third lesson this morning is this. Jesus makes it clear that the Father's love is not earned, but given freely. Jesus makes it clear the Father's love is not earned, but given freely. Verse 31, his father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. 
The elder brother denies that he's in relationship with a sibling. The elder brother denies that he has more in common than what separates them. He wants the difference to be greater. The reality is it's actually a fairly fine line. He's also angry at his dad because this party proves he's just as extravagantly wasteful as his prodigal son. They're two of a kind. And I think he's sure he missed out on something because he stayed at home in the care of his father's estate. He's so angry about it, he refuses to celebrate that a broken relationship is restored. That his brother who was in peril is now safe at home. And that puts his own soul in danger. He doesn't share his father's heart, and it drives him further away from home. So what can older brothers do? If we've ever once felt entitled, we've got at least a little older brother at work in us, what can we do? Older brothers tend to treat people as a means to an end. If we want to fix that, we focus first on the relationship. We treat people as children of God, worthy of respect and honor. We ease up on our unchecked criticism, even for that voice in our own heads that's constantly nagging us from within. We repent of pouring tasks on people without helping to saturate them in grace. Older brothers think they want justice, not mercy. If we want to see restoration and reconciliation, we have to figure out how to receive mercy and extend to others that same mercy that we would receive for ourselves. The fact is, we are all lost in one way or another. It's just that some ways of being lost can sure look like being a dutiful disciple, too busy to be a child of the Father. Older brothers are often more concerned about what's in it for them than sacrificing for others with compassion. We have to release our grip. Weep for the broken and be broken for them. And that means we have to come to terms with our own brokenness. Compassion looks a whole lot different when we realize that we need it too. Older brothers will think it's their wealth, their resource, and their lifeboat. But we have to know that everything we have first came from God. And everything will return to God. We will someday give an account for how we use the abundance of God's gifts for our father's purposes in this life. Older brothers deny being in relationship with their siblings, but we are sisters and brothers together. We place so many walls, divisions, and curtains between ourselves and others. We divide by race, ethnicity, gender, political party, orientation, and even music preference. We fight stupid battles and nobody wins. But Peter, the rock on which the church is built, reminds us, finally, all of you should be of one mind, Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Maybe we're all differently distant from the Father. But God wants the wasteful runaways to come home. God wants the self-righteous entitled to join in the homecoming celebration. All of us need to get closer to our dad, our heavenly Father, again. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we actually need each other to come back to where he is. But we'll talk more about that next week when we spend time with the extravagant Father. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we play that game of comparison so often that if we find our brokenness, the sins and darkness of our heart, to be slightly less offensive than that of our neighbor, we are clearly in better shape. But God, when we examine ourselves and let the light of your spirit look within us, we recognize that our self-righteousness is built on nothing, that all we have is a gift of your grace 
and we are entitled to none of it. It's a gift you've given freely. And so, Lord, when the lost come home, when broken people make a, a turn towards your household, allow us to be present for the celebrations. Even if we're reluctant at first, being a part of the celebrations will absolutely transform our hearts. God, you desire that all would experience that gift of life that is true and abundant and eternal. So we pray that just as heaven celebrates when a lost soul is brought home, that we would rejoice as well and that our celebrations would honor you because your heart is fulfilled with that return. We offer ourselves in grateful response for all you are and all you've done for us. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.